All right, Genesis chapter 4. Now Abram, or sorry, Abram. I I had Abram on the mind from this morning. Sorry. Adam. (laughs) Now Adam knew his new Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from, the, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre in the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, So here we go, Genesis chapter 4. Just to sort of get our bearings where we are. If you remember back in the beginning... Not the beginning of, you know, like day one, but I mean back when we started the study. Um, we said that one of the, you know, the, the big structure to, to Genesis is 
you've got Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which set the stage for Abram or Abraham, and then the rest of that book tells the patriarchal history. So you've got the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, the patriarchal history, Genesis 12 through 50. But even within that structure is another structure that you see, um, and you see it beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, depending on the translation, it either says this is the history of or these are the generations of. That's a Hebrew phrase uh, in, in Hebrew, it's toledot. And that's a marker throughout the book of Genesis that tells you that the story is changing. Okay, so the first, you know, what we looked at in chapter 1 in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, that was the creation. And now what you see starting in chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 4, is the generation of the heavens and the earth in the day that they were made and they were created. So you're seeing this sort of early history here after creation as um, you know, Adam and Eve begin to populate the earth as they are created. They're placed in the garden. Uh, we saw last time they were kicked out of the garden because of the fall. And now you're starting to see, um, not only will we see tonight the effects of the fall, but you're also going to start seeing how the earth begins to get populated. And it's going to lead up to, of course, the story of Noah uh, when you get the whole, uh, you know, the earth becomes filled. Instead of with the glory of God, the earth becomes filled with wickedness as people who are born in sin just continue to populate and they begin to go to all the depths of sin. But we'll get to that in a moment. But we're still in that first section the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this is the last part of that part of the story in Genesis chapter 4. Now again, uh, to go back to Genesis 3 for a moment, uh, that story, of course, tells the story of the fall. Uh, Adam and Eve were created good. Uh, Adam was created holy, righteous, and good. Placed in the garden. He was given a a wife. And at the end of chapter 2, you find out after God covenants with Adam, I keep wanting to say Abraham, when God covenants with Adam, uh, you know, everything is good. Uh, you know, they, he, he has his wife, uh, they are naked without shame, and they are there, um, two sinless individuals, married, you know, the institution of marriage is there at the end of the chapter, and, you know, everything seems to be going according to plan until... Chapter 3, and then you see that the serpent infiltrates the garden, and the serpent begins to uh, twist God's word, and then uh, begins to just outright lie about God's word. And he attacks Eve. He doesn't attack Adam, even though Adam was complicit because he was there uh, while this was all going on, but he attacks Eve. And you notice that she, you know, when, when he says, did God actually say to you, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Her response adds something to the command that God said. He just said, don't eat of the tree. And then she says, we can't even touch it. Not sure where that came from. Maybe Adam's like, don't touch the tree or something like that. But whatever the case may be, she becomes deceived, right? We learned that in the New Testament that you know it was Eve that was deceived, yet it is Adam that is ultimately responsible for what happened. So the serpent comes in, he infiltrates God's garden temple, he tempts Eve, she eats, she gives to Adam, who then eats with her, and then the two of them are fallen, God comes, and then they start the blame game, right? They start the finger pointing. 
the woman you gave me, the serpent that you put in the garden. And they're all ultimately pointing the finger at God for why they have fallen. And, and that's, that's a very classic thing to do when you're caught in your sin. When someone po- points that out to you or when someone mentions that to you, you, you start to shift the blame. You, know, you either say, well, I was made this way. You know, it's God's fault because he made me this way or what have you. But the point is, is that they are guilty and God curses them. And he goes in order with the serpent, then the woman, then the man. And in this cursing, of course, you see that uh, glimmer of hope, if you will, that light uh, of the gospel in verse 15 of chapter 3, where God makes the mother promise. He makes the proto-evangelum there, where he says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, while his heel will be bruised. So this promise that though the serpent has come in and Adam failed to to crush the head of the serpent, the second Adam will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. And we know that that happens on the cross when Satan is made powerless, when his power has been broken, and when the power of sin is broken and the penalty of sin has been paid for on the cross. And then we see at the end of all this, that they are expelled from the garden temple. They are kicked out and uh, lest they should take of the tree of life. Uh, The point there being that in their fallen state, presumably had they had taken from the tree of life, that would have confirmed them in their fallen state forever. So God says, kick them out. The tree of life has has been barred from you. Uh, you won't see the tree of life again until the new heavens and the new earth. So uh, it has been barred from them, and they are no longer now in the presence of, of God face-to-face like they would have been in the garden. So you have that perfect communion between man and God broken and shattered. And just like you have in the tabernacle or the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, and how the priests can only go in there once a year, and how he can only go in there unless he, you know, only until he has done all of these cleansing rituals to to purify himself because God being holy cannot stand to be in the presence of sin well the same thing here sin has entered now into the creation through Adam and Eve they cannot be in God's presence any longer they are kicked out of his garden temple and a guard is placed over the eastern portion uh, this cherubim that has this flaming sword that guards the way to the tree of life So now in chapter 4, we kind of pick up the story after Adam and Eve have been expelled. uh, We're going to see now, uh, I wouldn't say the first sin, but it's the the second sin, okay? Uh, At least the second recorded sin in the Bible, um, and that is the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And we all know the story very well, so I'm not spoiling the story when I tell you how it ended there, that yes, Cain did kill his brother Abel, I'm you know, you know, I know, I know you're shocked, <laughs> but uh, Cain did kill his brother Abel, and you know immediately what happens? You know the fall happens, and then all of a sudden you see a murder committed. I mean, you know, of all the sins to record first, it couldn't have been like a white lie or no. They go, they you know, they go for the gusto here, and then of course Cain lies later on to cover it up. Um, you know, and then you know lying to God, that's not a good. You know, plan. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get away with that in in God's uh, uh, mind there. But yeah, it do, it does that he can kind of hide that from God and think that it, it will 
it will actually um, work. <laughs> and that also says something about humanity, fallen humanity, you know, the, the links we go to to try to hide our sin. Um, so you're going to see here the first murder. You're going to see the effects of original sin carry themselves out uh, in that murder. Uh, and then you're going to see a descent into sin as, you know, at the end of the chapter, um, as you get this genealogy of Cain, um, you just see the descent of his line into further and further sin. Now, there's other things there, too, and we'll, we'll try to bring some of these out as we go along. But really what you have here, um, quite simple, you know, the theme for tonight is essentially the downward spiral of sin cries out for a Savior in Christ. Um, ultimately, this is going to point to our need for a Savior. In fact, everything in the Old Testament is going to point to our need for a Savior. So that can kind of get like a broken record for a while, but it's true. The sin that we see here committed points to the need for a Savior to atone for those sins. So we're going to look at this um, in five sections, and don't worry, just because it's five, don't, some of these are shorter sections than others. Um, they're, not, they're not all equally long. First, we're just going to look briefly at verses 1 and 2, as you see here, the birth of Cain and Abel. So look again, please, at verses 1 and 2. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. I'm just going to stop there. Okay, we all know what that means, right? Didn't like, oh, you're Eve. Okay, now that I know you, all right, we know that it's a euphemism, okay? Um, the word does mean knowledge, to know, but it has a connotation that, I'll just let you guys figure that one out. <laughs> So Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now the name Cain uh, is derived from the Hebrew word forgotten, not for, for space, gotten, not forgotten. Um, so the names here have meanings. Um, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Now interestingly enough, uh, Abel's name uh, in Greek, or sorry, not Greek, in Hebrew, his name is Hevel. And that's the word that you see in Ecclesiastes that means vanity or nothing or breath. It's the word for breath. And it's interesting that his name is that because, in a sense, Abel's life is like a breath, right? I mean, he's there and then he's gone and poof, you know, like a breath, he's gone. And it shows the, the fragility of life, the the, the mortality of life um, and, 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 and how short life can be, particularly when your brother kills you. But uh, his name means breath or vanity as well. But here you see Adam and Eve, they were to be fruitful and multiply, and here they are, they have uh, the, first of, uh, the first two of many children um, that we will see later on in chapter 5. And, of course, later on in chapter 4, they have a third son, uh, many children. They have the first two there. And we see that immediately Cain and Abel begin to engage in activity. And we're told that Abel basically is a shepherd. He's a keeper of sheep. And Cain is a worker or a laborer or a servant of the ground. So farmers, Cain's, Cain is kind of like one of your guys in the sense that he's a farmer. right? He works the ground and Abel is a shepherd, a flock herder, a keeper of sheep. Now, we're not told time frames here. We're not told, you know, like when chapter 4 begins, it was 
so many days, so many years, so many months after the events of chapter 3. Uh, we know that some time must have gone by because I'm going to you know, just look at some of these things here. Because later on, Cain mentions that he's afraid of some people. Well, where are these people? Well, they have to be descendants of, you know, I mean, brothers and sisters of Cain. So Adam and Eve had many children. Um, when Cain finds his wife, you're like, well, where does his wife come from? Well, he was marrying one of his sisters. That's, that has to be the answer. Otherwise, you're talking about you have the creation of Adam and Eve, and then you have like other you know, hominid or humanoid type people that were there that evolved or whatever. No, there was only, you know, only God created human beings uh, in his image, and these are just, must be children of Adam and Eve that are not mentioned. So, you know, again, don't look for time markers in here because there aren't any. We're not told how much time has transpired in all of this. Could be hundreds of years. Right, exactly. So, anyway, so here's Cain. He's a, he's a worker of the ground, and here's Abel. He is a keeper of the sheep. And here we have the first children born after the fall, and we're going to see how fast God's very good creation is going to be polluted by sin. And, and we'll look at that in a moment. And now let's look at verses 3 through 7. I told you the first point would be quick. You know, there's only so much you could say about verses 1 and 2. But in verses 3 through 7, we're going to look here at the offerings of Cain and Abel. So it says there, in the course of time, again, we're not told how much time, just at some point. Oh, is it? I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look that up in... Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So in the course of time, or at the end of days, uh, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard or respect. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. It's just an expression, another Hebrew expression. He was, he was saddened. He was embarrassed. He was uh, mortified, if you will. Uh, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So here we see worship beginning. Okay, Now, they were kicked out of the garden, but they're, I would suggest they're probably not too far from the entrance of the garden. And if, again, if the garden is like a temple, you know, what, what are the Israelites told to do in, you know, in the time of Moses? Well, they're told to bring their offerings to the, to the gates of the temple. And there the, the Levites will come and they'll take care of the offering and do what they have to do. Here, they are bringing their offering to the Lord. They're probably bringing it right up to the edge of where the garden was. And they're bringing up their offerings to the Lord. So it's kind of interesting. We see worship here being performed. We're not quite sure how the practice of making offerings started, but Cain and Abel knew to bring offerings to the Lord. Now Cain's offering, of course, is different than Abel's, based on their, their vocations, if you will. Cain, being a farmer, well, he brought produce. 
He brought, uh, he brought some of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And of course, Abel, being a shepherd, he brought, as we're told here, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, there's a couple of things you could say about this here. First, the, the offering of the firstborn of the flock suggests that Abel gave the best of his flock, okay, the fat portions, the firstborn. We're not told that about Cain, whether he brought the first fruits of the ground to him. We're just told that he brought some of the fruit of the ground to him, but Abel was very specific to bring the best of his flock to him. Secondly, the idea of bringing a lamb or the first fruit of the, uh, the firstborn of his flock suggests that blood must be uh, brought to God to sacrifice. Again, if you remember at the end of chapter 3, when uh, Adam and Eve realized that they they had sinned and they were naked, they attempt to sew fig leaves together. And then later on we're told that God provides for them garments of skin, and that that those garments of skin came from somewhere, right? Right. could God have just you know, spoken into existence? Sure. I feel that an animal was killed to provide those skins for Adam and Eve to show how blood is necessary for the covering of sin and how atonement must be performed as a substitute. Because they were to die by eating the fruit, but God graciously accepts an animal substitute for their sin to cover their sin. So perhaps Abel, realizing this, brings an animal He brings an animal, blood sacrifice, which suggests atonement. And in a sense, points to what Christ does, right? Christ is the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the the, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. He is the best portion. Another thing you can think of here, too, is, and we're going to look at this in a moment. In fact, let's just look at it now. Because the question is often asked is, why did, why did God uh, look and regard Abel's sacrifice uh, uh, pleasingly, and why did he look and not regard Cain's sacrifice? We're not told specifically here. If you're just going by what you see in Genesis 4, you have to sort of draw these implications out. But if you turn to Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, verse 4, Here, the writer of Hebrews, uh, where the whole chapter of 11 is devoted to faith, but in verse 4, we're told here by the writer of Hebrews, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that whatever the case may be, Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Cain apparently did not offer his sacrifice by faith. And if you think again about what Cain does, right? Cain is a worker of the ground. What he is doing is he's offering part, in a sense, the fruit of his works to God. Whereas Abel is offering an offering of faith to God by offering the lamb or the the firstborn of his flock. What's that? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> a flock of sheep. <laughs> so again, it's, it, you know, Abel's was offered by faith. In a sense, what Cain is doing is he's offering up the fruit of his labors, the fruit of his works. And, and as we know, of course, throughout Scripture, works are not pleasing to God. You cannot earn God's favor through works. It is only through faith, as the author of Hebrews points out to us. It is by faith that Abel's offering was uh, respected or regarded, not Cain's. Could it have been an attitude of Cain's heart? Too? What was that? Could it have been like an attitude of Cain's heart? I'm, almost certainly. Yeah, I mean, again, we're not specifically told here, but I think based on what you see after the fact, yeah, I would imagine it has a lot to do with Cain's attitude. Uh, as we're about to see here in a moment, when uh, God had no regard for Cain's offering, Cain, what, is, well, what does Cain do? He gets angry. He starts to get angry. His face falls. He, he's, he's dejected. He's got his head down. He, he's he's uh, jealous. Um, he's trying to please the Lord with the works of his labors, and, and the Lord rejects him. Now, the Lord rejected his offering. He didn't necessarily reject Cain. He rejected his offering because he says, look, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you, if you labor in faith, if you, if you offer your sacrifice in faith, will you not be accepted? Yes. Because by, you know, the only way to please God is through faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Cain gets angry, and the Lord speaks to him. Why, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And then there's a warning. If you do, not, if you do well, you will, be, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, and we looked at this uh, last time too, sin is crouching at your door. That's a, that's a wonderful image there of sin, sort of like a, a ravenous lion or a leopard just waiting to pounce on you if you, if you do not cease in the direction you're going. Now again, think of what we saw when, when we, uh, we looked at Eve's temptation. She, she did not sin when she ate the fruit. She sinned way before that. She sinned at the moment she regarded the fruit as something to be desired and to be taken and to be eaten. When she made that decision, the eating of the fruit was just the, pun intended, the fruit of that sin that had already borne up in her heart. And here, what is the root sin of murder? It's anger, right? That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's very well and good for you to say you have not murdered, but do you have anger toward anybody in your heart? And the anger here is going to give birth to the sin of murder, as we're about to see. And God is warning him, saying, look, you know, watch yourself. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. It wants you. It wants to get its hooks in you. It wants to pounce on you. It wants to devour you. If you give in to it, you must rule over it, he says. You must have dominion over your sin or else it's going, as well, I think as John Owen said, right? be killing sin or sin be killing you. Right? That's kind of what's going on here. If you, are, if you do not do well, if you, if you don't watch out, sin is going to get you and it's going to have you. Just as, as uh, we saw in chapter 3 where Eve's desire is for the role of her husband, and her husband wants to dominate over her. That's how the sin works in the marriage relationship. So we saw here 
the reason why Abel's offering was received in Cain's was not. Cain, uh, Abel's offering was offered in faith. Cain's was offered not in faith. He offered his own works. We also see here how anger is the root of murder, and we're going to see the destructiveness of sin. Sin will rule over him. Sin has desired him. Sin will conquer Cain. He's going to give in to it. So now we look at verses 8 through 16. So this is kind of a, a longer section here as we now see the murder of Abel by Cain. Cain did not heed God's warning, and we see the premeditation on his part uh, because this, was not a, uh, this is not a crime of passion, as they say, right? This is not a heat-of-the-moment thing. Uh, again, we're not told how much time went by, but put it this way. If, if you're angry and someone comes up to you and says, watch out, don't be angry, and then you go away, and then you end up you know, luring your brother out into the field to kill him, that's premeditation. He has already decided he's going to kill his brother. So we see here in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You know, I mean, pretty straightforward there, right? There's no, no gloss over this. There's no, there's no, you know, it's just straight out. Cain deceived his brother, brought him out into the field, and then killed him. So he's lured into the field where Cain kills him, and then now God approaches Cain. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Now, again, don't think that God doesn't know what's happening here, right? God is omniscient. He knows what's happening. Just like when in chapter 3, when after they ate and God comes in the cool of the night in the garden and sees Adam, he says, where are you? And Adam's hiding, <laughs> hiding from God. And, and he says, where are you? God is not asking, you know, looking for Adam, you know, like playing a little game of hide and seek in the garden. Uh, Adam, uh, God knew exactly where Adam was, and he was asking more, where, where are you, Adam? Where's your heart? Here, the Lord is, in a sense, seeing if Cain will fess up to what he has done. What have you done? Where's your brother? And then, of course, sin tries to cover its actions. Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. <laughs> yes, he was his brother's keeper. He failed in his job, right? He failed in his task to love his brother. Think about the story of the prodigal son, right? The, the man with two sons. The younger son goes off into the far country. What's the younger son doing during all this time? Well, he's still laboring in his father's house, thinking, you know, how he's going to earn his, his uh, father's love and his, you know, his inheritance and and he doesn't care about his, older, his younger brother. He should have been the first one out there. He, shouldn't, he should have been the first one out there to stop his younger brother from doing what he did, smacking him upside in the head and said, you don't realize how good you have it here, brother. And he doesn't do any of that. And then when the brother does return, the older brother doesn't even acknowledge him as his brother. He goes to his father and says, the son of yours. So we know there, too, the older brother should have been his brother's keeper, and he wasn't. Cain should have been his brother's keeper, and he wasn't. So am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. And the Lord said, what have you done? And hear this, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Sin defiles the land. That's what God tells uh, Abraham and Moses 
about the Canaanites who were living in the promised land while they were out in slavery. It's like their sin has reached my nostrils. It's a stench. They are defiling the land, and I'm going to purge them out. And guess what? You guys are going to be my instruments of judgment to purge these vile, wicked sinners out of the land. And then when Israel comes in, and then they fail to keep the covenant, and, and they are sacrificing children and committing idolatry and committing all kinds of, of sin and debauchery, they are, in a sense, as, as the Old Testament says, they are vomited out. It's just this violent reaction to, of, of the land, in a sense, to the sin of the people, and they are vomited out. So sin's blood, or sin defiles the land. Abel's blood demands justice. That's what his blood is crying out. Again, another wonderful passage in the book of Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews chapter 12 this time. We're there. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 18 of chapter 12, but what I want is really in verse 24, but I'm going to lead up to it. So Hebrews chapter 12 Starting in verse 18, again, the author of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and a gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This is him referring to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the author's like, this is not where you're coming. <laughs> you're not coming to Mount Sinai, which is fear and, and, and dread. It says, you have come to Mount Zion, much better than Mount Sinai. Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Hey, there's your song about the roll call being called up to heaven there. Uh, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous people, of righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel is spilled into the ground and it cries out to God. Vengeance. Avenge me. My brother has killed me. I want justice. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. Jesus' blood speaks a covering of the sin. Jesus' blood speaks of propitiation, the atonement, the appeasing of the wrath of God. But here we, get, we see that blood defiles the land. And then sin, of course, brings a curse. Cain can't say anything to this because God knows exactly what has happened. So now he says in verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. This is, feels like it's almost like a doubling of the curse from chapter 3 where now you have to work and by the sweat of your brow you will feed yourselves. Well, here he's like saying it's like, now for you, Cain, you're, you're going to get less, right? It's not even going to yield its strength to you. He says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Now notice what Cain says. He doesn't say, I am sorry, Lord, for killing my brother. I repent in dust and ashes or anything along those lines. No, he just says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. No repentance. No, no seeking of forgiveness. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. You know, we say this often too, right? The, in the benediction that I often uh, pronounce uh, from the book of Numbers about how the face of God is, if it's turned towards you, it's a gracious countenance, right? It brings peace. It brings love. When that face is turned away, it's God, in a sense, removing his grace, removing his, 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 well, his well-meaning towards you. I am hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Why? Because you killed our brother. <laughs> you know, again, if the people wandering the earth are brothers and sisters of Cain, well, you killed our brother Abel. <laughs> you, know? you know, what happens in the Old Testament when someone kills someone? They, they are to flee to the city of refuge, lest the, the, the avenger of blood will seek them out. So what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? So he's forced to be a wanderer. He's in fear of his life. And now we see God, even now, acting graciously to him. He says, look, I'll put my mark on you. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. It's a mark of grace, in a sense, right? He's giving him protection. Um, He's giving him protection because... In a sense, this is a way to sort of prevent further bloodshed, uh, further uh, murder, further, further vengeance. So he puts the mark on him and he's, he's cast out. So Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he's further away now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, he is a... He's a wanderer, just like, what is it? Is that Jimmy Dean, or who, who sings that? <laughs> so here's some irony, right? Why, Cain was angry, why? Because God regarded his sacrifice less than Cain, or Abel's, right? He had no regard, so he was angry. What does that lead him to do? It leads him to kill his brother, which leads to even less regard, not more, right? You know, it's like, okay, I'll get God to accept my sacrifice. I'll kill my brother so that I'm the only one who's bringing an acceptable sacrifice. But, any, but what we see here is the irony. It leads to less, not more. So it's an irony here, if you will. Sin promises much and delivers nothing. The, few, the failure of Cain and his lack of repentance here you see Right, we, we talked about that. He has no repentance. He has no regard for the fact that he killed his brother's life. All he's caring about is what's going to happen to me now, right? <laughs> All right, my brother's dead. What's going to happen to me? Uh, this, this is this punishment's too hard for me. And he's driven from the face of the Lord. He's driven from the presence of blessing and grace. So now we see in verses seventeen through twenty-four. A bit of a genealogy of Cain, if you will. Cain's descendants. So here we see in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael, these names are good, huh? fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name was, and the other was Bridezilla. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilla bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Nema. So a couple of things to note here. Um, one is common grace. So we talk about common grace. It's not a saving grace. Common grace is a way of talking about how God, essentially what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is, in a sense, gracious to the unjust uh, in, in the fact that he allows the rains to fall on them. He allows the sun to shine for them. He, he allows them life, right? I mean, God, you know, whenever we sin, God should strike us down, but the fact that he doesn't is common grace. It's not a saving grace, but in, you see common grace here in the sense that as Cain's descendants grow, we see these three individuals who are, in a sense, masters of industry, right? One who is a dweller in tents, one who is a, a, uh, a musician, who is the, the father of all those who play instruments, and another one who is a forger of bronze and iron. We have industry here. We see ingenuity in these things here. But we also see a further and further descent into sin when you look at Lamech. Right, Lamech uh, says to his wife, now, first of all, notice two wives, right? So you got polygamy going on here. Um, you're supposed to find your wife, right? The father, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives. Uh, so here we see he's a polygamist. But moreover, he is, in a sense, a, a God mocker, you know, I mean, if you will, right? I mean, he kind of mocks what happened to his descendant Cain. And he says, look, if Cain's curse is sevenfold, then my curse will be 77-fold. He's boasting, right? Cain killed his brother out of jealousy. Lamech here just kills somebody because of striking him, right? You know, so a little bit overboard, right? You know, the whole thing about, you know, um, you know tooth for tooth, eye for an eye. Well, you know, he, he's, he's operating more like, uh, you know, the Chicago Mafia did. It's like, you, you put one of ours in the hospital, we're going to put one of yours in the grave. That's kind of how Lamech is offering, uh, operating here. He, he um, mocks God. He commits polygamy. He commits murder for a very small offense. And he just mocks God, saying if, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then mine is going to be seventy-sevenfold. So here, we, again, we see the... the downward spiral of sin, right? It begins with Cain, and it just passes on to his descendants, and it gets worse and worse. And by the time we get to chapter 7, we're going to see that, as he says here, that the thoughts uh, that the, the Lord looks down, chapter 6, verse 5, and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, sin's downward spiral in that sense, but here we have, you know, away from God, right? Away from the presence of the Lord, away from His face, east of Eden, man is left in his sin. 
And if he's left in his sin, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Consider Romans 1. We do see common grace, as I mentioned, uh, in the sense that uh, industry is born, that uh, men are able to exist and make cities and, and, and make discoveries and make advancements in technology, but it doesn't lead to any kind of salvation. If anything, it leads to a salvation in your own works, in your own ingenuity. Well, finally, let's look at the last couple of verses there, the birth of Seth, verses 25 and 26. So Adam knew his wife again, hey, Eve, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth was also born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So all is not lost. <laughs> all is not lost. There's a little bit of a silver lining, just as you had in Genesis 3.15. Even though with the curse, there's the promise of the gospel. Here, even though Abel is dead, killed by his brother, she has another son. She has another son named Seth. And we see that while Cain's descendants descended more and more into sin, with Seth, we see that people now begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So it's not lost. All is not lost. We see here the seed of the woman is preserved through Seth. And what you really see here, of course, is this overall arching battle, if you will, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it's going to be continuing all throughout Genesis, all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the serpent is going to seek to destroy uh, the seed of the woman, but we're going to see that God will provide and protect and, 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 and preserve that seed, that godly seed. Now, the seed of the woman is not Seth. Now, maybe Eve thought that, we don't know, but the seed of the woman is not Seth. He is the one through whom it will come. It is preserved in Seth. It will pass on. And we'll see that genealogy in chapter 5 when we look at that in a couple of weeks. But Seth here represents what we would call the godly line. The line of people, again, they're, they're, still, they're just as much born in sin as Cain and his descendants. Right? So it's not that they're better. It's just that they seek the Lord. That's, that's, the, that's what makes them godly. Not their, their holiness, not their perfectness, but the fact that they seek the Lord. They seek the Lord. They seek salvation and the only one in whom they can seek salvation, and that is God himself. And we see worship and reverence. They call upon the name of the Lord. That, that speaks of uh, worship and reverence. So again, just bringing this to a close, uh, sin has consequences. Right? Sin has consequences. The fall has irrevocably ruined the creation to the point where Paul in Romans 8 says that the creation groans. It groans. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. The first murder shows how man outside of paradise is doomed to a life of evil and debauchery. It doesn't get better for mankind on his own. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And if the blood of Abel cries out to God, think about this. Think about how much the blood of countless murders since then cries out to God. Think about how the blood of aborted babies, the death of the unborn, cries out to God. 
If the blood of Abel cries out to God for vengeance, I think their blood cries out even more for vengeance. This is our world. This is our situation. Millennia of human history has not seen it get better. It has seen it get worse. It just has. And we're all infected with original sin. We're all born with the same sin that Adam had. When Adam committed sin, it was said that that passed on to his generation. Paul says that in Romans 5. He says, uh, Adam sinned, and then through that sin, sin passed on and death passed on to all of those that came after Adam. We have that original sin. In fact, um, our own Belgian Confession, Article 15, on, it speaks on original sin, and it says this, We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has spread, been spread throughout the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity which even infects infants in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in humanity every sort of sin. We are born with original sin, and what that does is it produces sins. Okay, so uh, just because you might be an innocent person who hasn't committed any actual sins, you have that original sin on your conscience. So we are all infected with original sin and thus susceptible to the same sins as Cain. We are no different than Cain. We are no different than Cain. We need a Savior. Our hope is through the line of Seth. Seth will produce a godly line. We're going to look at a genealogy in a couple of weeks in chapter 5. And I have to figure out interesting things to say about a genealogy, but we'll, we'll worry about that in two weeks. But we're going to see that godly line carried on from Seth to a bunch of others, and then coming to Noah, who is a man of who is a, who is one that God uh, found favor in. Noah, which means righteousness, of course. And then we're going to see that continue on. We need a savior. We need a savior. Just as Abel's offering was acceptable, so too was the sacrifice of Christ acceptable to God. When Jesus offered a sacrifice, it was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Right? He, we're told in the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 that he once for all time shed his blood, brought that blood into the, into the heavenly temple and atoned for the sins of mankind. We need atonement and Christ has graciously provided that. And we have then in ourselves, we can be righteous again through that blood of Christ, through that uh, perfect righteousness of Christ, not of our own. It was his sacrifice that atones for our sins and, and sets us up so that we can be heirs and sons of God. So I'll stop here. Uh, next time, in two weeks, Lord willing, on the 16th, uh, we'll look at Genesis chapter 5.